I'm Sean McCormick, and this is Optimal Performance. Fathom hell or sore angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. And, and I hate to break it to anybody who would disagree with me on this, but there are no experts in psychedelics. It's too broad of, a, of an arena. When you open up that, that wormhole, it's infinity. No one is a, an expert when it comes to infinity. That, everyone, is Brett Jesse Green, and he's the Chief Innovation Officer at Cybin. And what Cybin is, is they are a publicly traded psychedelic company leading the industry in developing proprietary psychedelic therapeutics. Brett is a fascinating person. He's He was reading about psychedelic trip reports at the age of eight and writing philosophical poetry uh, as a kid as well. In this episode, we talk about how he continues to innovate against the greater world who is skeptical about psychedelics and how what it takes mentally, emotionally, and practically in order to continue to pursue your dream. We talk about enduring hardships for greater insights. This is really the hallmark of what psychedelics are here for is to go through some of these things in your life to learn something, to come away better, to grow. We talk about the psychedelic industry at large, and perhaps most importantly, where psychedelics will be serving us in medicine, in the treatment of uh, disease, and in the treatment of mental disorders. The future is now. It's here, and you should know what's going on, because when it comes to performance, when it comes to being the best person you, you can possibly be, psychedelics will eventually be a part of that for you. Whether, whether you anticipate it or not. Super fascinating episode. You can email him. You can reach him at brett at cybin, C-Y-B-I-N.com. You can always find me at sean at seanmccormick.com. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Brett Jesse Green. And I'm here with Brett Jesse Green. He's the Chief Innovation Officer at Cybin and has a thousand other amazing projects and platforms that he's created. Brett, welcome to the Optimal Performance Podcast. Hey, thank you. Not not quite thousands, but uh, I appreciate the enthusiasm. <laughs> I, I think a great place to start is if you could just give give the listeners an idea of who the hell you are, what you do in the world, and some of the things that you've you've worked on. Well, um, I uh, guess I would consider myself an entrepreneur, um, kind of first and foremost. Uh, I've been passionate about uh, psychedelics and uh, pharmacology now for over, uh, I would say, over 30 years. Um, I uh, started a number of companies, um, including uh, Symposia, which became a nonprofit. Uh, we started that back in 2014. It's a media and education company uh, that uh, put events around the world on uh, psychedelics. Um, as well as uh, Evo Kana, which is a cannabis company that uh, I was the founding CEO of that uh, we just sold. Actually, we finalized the sale of that last week. Um, I uh, was the uh, co-inventor of a platform called Grow IQ, which is a um, uh, data platform for uh, advancing and optimizing uh, cannabis cultivation across uh, multi-state operations and assets. And um, most recently, Adelia Therapeutics, which I was the co-founder, president, and chief strategist of. And uh, we sold that um, to Cybin, uh, which is how I became the chief innovation officer at Cybin. And Adelia Therapeutics is a psychedelic or was a psychedelic drug discovery company and uh, is now 
uh, you know, the drug discovery engine for uh, Cybin Inc. I guess. Brett, um, Brett yeah, we're going to pa pause just one second. I want to. I want to sure. just want to make sure that your headphones are actually linked up as the microphone. Um, oh, they are. Yeah, they you're, are. You're not hearing them. Yeah, I, I am. There, there's a little bit of a little bit of an echo. It's not a big deal. It's a little. It's a little thing. But uh, just wanted to verify. We're good. We're good. Okay, sorry about that. No, 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 it's okay. It's uh, it's. I, I, I have very tall ceilings, and uh, it's quite possible that you you'll hear an echo. Uh, let let me think if I. Unfortunately, I've got these huge ceilings everywhere in my apartment. Uh, it, it's honestly, Brett. It's it's quite all right. The the, the quality is not. Uh, it's not terrible. It's 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 a little less than like a USB mic. Uh, but it's it's perfectly okay. It's not going to detract from content at all. Okay. Yeah. Well, apologies. No, no problem. So, Brett, what is what is Cybin? If you could please just sort of explain that to people, because I want to talk a little bit about uh, about you know publicly traded psychedelic companies and and how how that world works. So, if you could tell us a little bit about what Cybin does, that'd be great. Well, Cybin is advancing uh, psychedelics as therapeutics. Um, we uh, have a pipeline of novel uh, compounds that we're developing. Um, the majority of these are, are psychedelic. Uh, the, uh, what I call the, the non-psychedelic psychedelics are, are also not off the table. So these are uh, potentially compounds that would uh, um, hit the same receptors that uh, psychedelics hit, but uh, in a way that doesn't cause uh, an acute psychedelic effect. And um, we are bringing our drug candidates through the FDA. And Cybin also uh, is involved in uh, the digital health space uh, somewhat. And uh, my role at Cybin has been largely to architect and to oversee uh, the uh, build out and invention process for, for that platform. And um, uh, we're in process of uh, looking at potential partnerships uh, for the further development of that. Um, and, uh, you know, Simon is uh, very dedicated, I think, to, uh, you know, a um, reality where uh, safe psychedelic medicines are available uh, for, uh, you know, the people that need them. We've done episodes before on you know, the, the future of psychedelic medicines and, and the, and, and also the cross-section of the digital space. And I'm always curious to get people's opinions about the opportunity that lies ahead for, uh, for treatments, for medications, for the application of psychedelics in a real practical way. And so I'm curious about, obviously you're, you're all in, and I would love to know, what what is the what is the real the, the real grounded actual opportunity for for people in the future to look to psychedelics for the treatment of uh of of various ailments like what how far out are we and how realistic is it that people will be you know f legally using psychedelics as uh, as medicines well people are already legally using psychedelics as medicines. Um, that's 
what ketamine uh, infusion therapy is essentially. So uh, ketamine uh, therapy has been uh, uh, happening legally, although albeit off-label, uh, to treat treatment-resistant depression for some time now. And it's uh, become a blueprint, I think, for how a lot of companies and uh, providers are thinking about the future of psychedelic medicine. So I, I think the future is already here. Um, in terms of kind of a more grounded of, you know, when am I going to be able to go to my doctor? My doctor is going to be able to prescribe, you know, a classic psychedelic uh, like a psilocybin or a psilocybin-like compound or a DMT-like compound or MDMA. I think MDMA is going to be uh, the next one that's going to come out. Uh, it's furthest along in clinical trials, as you probably know, uh, via MAPS. And um, I think that MDMA will likely be uh, available for uh, uh, treating PTSD probably in the next, uh, I don't know, three to five years. Um, I think uh, ketamine will continue to uh, grow in terms of its its use. Um, and uh, the providers uh, that are involved in ketamine, I, I think, are uh, rightly uh, looking towards the future, as I said, of other psychedelics to come out. And so the the use of, of legal psych, uh, ketamine is uh, in a way kind of a, a pipeline towards uh, approved psychedelic medicines uh, in the future. And um, I would think that psychedelic treatments will be normalized and kind of the standard, uh, even first line treatment uh, within 10 years. Wow, within 10 years. What, what makes you say that? Well, as you know, uh, there's an epidemic with uh, depression and mental health uh, and the treatments uh, that are available now um, are effective for some people, but um, uh, less effective for a lot of others. And uh, also there's um, uh, little in the way of adjunct uh, treatments uh, to supplement or complement um, existing uh, uh, treatments for depression and, and mental health. Um, and I think that, um, the sheer need and the size of the epidemic, uh, is such that, um, as you've seen, you know, the Biden administration, I think is behind trying to figure out how to accelerate this process. Um, and there's a lot of interest, uh, in, uh, you know, helping people, um, either helping veterans that are, you know, committing uh, suicide 22 people a day um, by some estimates or, uh, you know, people who are suffering from treatment resistant depression. I mean, we're talking millions of people. Uh, there is a real, uh, there's a real push to find something better. And anecdotally, uh, it would appear that for a lot of people, psychedelics um, is uh, very promising in that respect. We still have to go through the FDA. They have to um, you know, make sure that uh, these are actually better than placebo and that uh, they are um, safe and effective. And uh, I think uh, there's a lot of companies that are pursuing that avenue. And uh, it's it's hard to believe that uh, unless, um, you know, the uh, amazing anecdotal data and the um, university studies uh, that have um, you know, really been prominent, I think, in making the case for this are just completely wrong. Uh, we're, we're very likely to see uh, psychedelic medicines 
emerge um, sooner rather than later. Today's episode is brought to you by BioPro Plus. I love this stuff. It has made a major change in my life, in my metabolism, in my mood, in my ability to put on lean muscle mass and feel as powerful as I want to feel. BioPro Plus is the faster, easier, and safer non-synthetic alternative to painful, expensive, and invasive anti-aging and hormone treatments. Before you do TRT, before you start taking a bunch of herbs that may not make you feel the way that you want to feel, you should try this. You can go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. You know, you know that a sponsor is a hit when people who have purchased it reach out to me and say, holy cow, Sean, I tried this and it's amazing. It's blowing my mind. It makes me better at everything that I do. I love having sponsors like this that really make a difference in people's lives. And this product is, it's absolutely incredible. It's growth factors and amino acids that will help you improve your hormones, become better at everything that you want to do. So go to bioproteintech.com and use the code OPP for $30 off. Obviously, the application for anxiety and depression, you know, maybe even, you know, sleep uh, and and other sorts of issues people are facing. I, I see the opportunity there with psychedelics, and I'm curious about the application for performance optimization. This is, after all, the Optimal Performance Podcast. And I think that you can think of that a little bit as recreational, legal recreational use. And we've seen some policy changes here in in the States and in Canada. But I'm curious about the application, the use, the responsible use of psychedelics for performance optimization. And and, and I'm curious about your thoughts, because we we, we often hear about uh, anxiety and depression for treating, you know, um, you know, folks who are experiencing mental issues. But what about the rest of us who are also interested in psychedelics for enhanced cognition or, um, you know, athletic performance, etc.? Like, how, do you think that that what what sort of compounds do you think uh, lend itself to that? And and do you see a, a pathway for the use in that respect? I think that um, they, they just, I forget where this report came up, but uh, more people now are trying psychedelics or have tried psychedelics at any time in history. And that includes the 60s. Um, what that tells me is that um, people aren't waiting for uh, legislation um, or FDA approval to uh, affect whatever benefits that they might from psychedelics, whether that be uh, mood or cognitive enhancement or uh, performance um, or what have you. So, you know, again, the future is already here. Uh, the question is, um, uh, does this, uh, you know, clandestine base of people that are kind of surreptitiously using this that that's growing all the time um, and uh, the climate of increasing uh, decriminalization states, uh, is that going to uh, morph and how quickly will that morph into, you know, a legal accepted uh, uh, marketplace? Um, It sure looks like there is going to be legal psychedelics, I think. Um, And uh, that poses, I think, uh, some, some questions, certainly. And there's a lot of groups that are, I think, considering those questions. 
there's uh, an event. Uh, actually, it's funny because Symposia back in 2014 or 2015, we put on a conference that was entitled um, uh, Envisioning a Post-Prohibition World, which was uh, designed to, to think about these uh, very things and to do that thought exercise of, you know, when psychedelics are legal, what, what would happen and uh, what should happen. And um, this was at a time, you know, back in 2015, when very, very few people uh, were uh, thinking about this seriously. And this is way before Michael Pollan. This is way before, uh, you know, this industry that was created. And actually, Symposia was, uh, I think, one of the first, you know, companies set up to, to actually kind of discuss uh, these kinds of things. And um, now there are... Uh, conferences that are literally titled the same thing, envisioning a post-prohibition world that um, are, are actually not thinking about this in, in sort of an Aldous Huxley Island uh, type of, you know, futuristic sci-fi exercise. They're actually thinking about this and because there's, you know, there's the need for this legislation and there's the need for these discussions to emerge uh, in the next few years. Um, so we went through a tremendous paradigm shift in the last 10 years about uh, this uh, this discussion. And um, I, I think that, uh, you know, from the Biden administration's uh, support for, you know, the legalization of some psychedelics, whatever that looks like, you know, to uh, state legal uh, in Oregon or um, the decrim movement in other places, uh, we're definitely moving towards a, a place where people are are going to be using psychedelics. Now, whether or not, um, you know, the government uh, uh, continues to criminalize those people uh, or, or not, um, the future of, of psychedelic use for optimization of performance and cognition, I, I, I think is, is certainly here. And I think it's here to stay. And I think more and more people are, are going to come to this. Um, but, you know, your question raises another question from a pharmaceutical perspective, which is, well, if this is happening kind of in the decrim or legal market, then what is the role of uh, the pharmaceutical side of things? And I think that the answer to that is, is actually really coming down to the indication. Because, um, you know, there's a big difference, I think, between having what you consider to be a functional baseline, and that's a baseline where, you know, you are uh, uh, relatively good to go and where psychedelics um, in low doses are not act as a tonic for, uh, for your re relatively functional baseline versus you have a really debilitating uh, uh, disease that you need a treatment for. And um, it's designing uh, the treatment that best is optimized for that indication that I think uh, pharmaceutics at its best is, uh, is there to do. So I really believe that um, the pharmaceutic side and the uh, whatever emerges uh, to uh, facilitate, you know, this performance optimization uh, need um, is, I think those two things can coexist and uh, indeed they, they will coexist. Yeah, I like I like that I like that approach, and I agree. You know, the the things the people will find their way towards things that work. You know, like 
people mm. will they will uh they will gravitate they will find ways to use substances that improve their lives and and we've you know we've seen that time and time again and when the public demands change in policy when they demand research when when people are already using various compounds to improve their lives uh the tides shift and i think that's exciting because like as you said there's more people experimenting using psychedelics in in a responsible way that that on the backside of that is more research more clinical trials uh more integration into this sort of allopathic uh, health uh paradigm because they work and when things work people will continue to to adopt them and to use them mm. you know the only correction that i'll make is um that things work because i i think that um it's clear to me that psychedelics uh work in certain contexts and certain uh circumstances in quite a few actually but it's unclear to me that uh they work all the time uh irregardless of of set and setting and, and i think that uh you'd have a lot of agreement about that from you know people who've been thinking about psychedelics for a while and um you know that also includes uh this notion of uh low dosing meta dosing or or what some i think uh um uh call microdosing but uh which is sort of a misnomer um there is a lot of attention i think being paid to the benefits of of low dosing and i have personally uh found low dosing to be effective but um i think there's still more research to be done in terms of um what the long term impact uh and the best dosing regimen uh is for this kind of thing and you have some companies that uh, claim to be investigating that you know one company i saw the other day on linkedin was saying that uh, you know they think three, you know three weeks on of using daily uh uh microdosing and one week off is kind of the best approach jim fadiman might have another approach um they, there's there's still disagreement there and there's not a lot of research into what actually constitutes uh you know the best impact for performance and um that uh, research uh seeing that the, the the foundational research for this has yet to be done um we certainly don't know um how dosing regimens change you know per individual per indication etc so there's there's still a lot of things to to work out and um i think that there's uh still some potential risks that um what what may be cognitively uh enhancing one day could by you know week 2 uh be uh actually a negative and i i think you know uh steven dedalus who is uh james joyce's protagonist uh in some of his novels uh, you know he, joyce had him say uh, history is the nightmare that we're awakening from and i i think that one of the nightmares that we're awakening from is this notion of um a daily vitamin that we take every day um 
this is not how a lot of cultures do medicine. They don't, you know, th this idea that we, sh we should take, you know, the same pills every morning. Um, it's not, uh, it, it really doesn't have a lot of uh, um, uh, precedent to it. And I think for good reason. Uh, for example, in, in ancient, you know, in Chinese medicine, you have this notion of a tonic where, you know, you, you don't take the tonic every day. You take the tonic as needed. Um, you know, in, in our pharmacology, you have this, uh, what you call, I guess, um, you know, a baseline or a basal tone where uh, you have endogenous activity, endogenous, you know, neurochemistry that is, uh, uh, right, always happening. And um, I think it, it, at its best, psychedelics can sometimes reset uh, that kind of activity. Uh, and um, there's also this mechanism that you've heard of called uh, neuroplasticity, where you're, you're essentially resetting certain patterns uh, that your brain has been wired uh, into. And um, the ability to reset those patterns uh, and change the endogenous uh, baseline uh, neurochemistry, uh, I, I think is one of the best things that, that psychedelics potentially pose. But the notion that you're going to continue to introduce a psychedelic uh, into that system, uh, in some way, I think, uh, obfuscates the, the, the benefits of being able to modulate that endogenous system uh, so that um, uh, you are able to have a stronger baseline. Um, as opposed to continue to, uh, you know, insert what it, I think, what I consider essentially a tonic into this uh, soup. Um, and in my own experimentation, um, uh, you know, I feel that uh, by this, by the second week of um, metadosing, and I'm not alone here, I've talked to other people, um, you know, I've experienced irritability. I've experienced even some depression. Uh, and it's not clear to me that uh, it's beneficial to continue to use uh, psychedelics or even cannabis for that matter um, on a uh, consistent basis, um, regardless of how you feel without those drugs. Because I think the idea is, is still, whenever possible, to uh, be able to raise your baseline um, so that you can, uh, you know, Im improve, uh, you know, functioning uh, without psychedelics uh, first. And by the way, once, once you're able to do that, um, then uh, on the cognitive en enhancement or performance enhancement side of things, uh, you can really get breakthroughs when you're then introducing psychedelics kind of on a very conscious um, intermittent and um, as needed PRN type of way, because that's when you can really, uh, you know, get your creative breakthroughs um, as opposed to, you know, simply just introducing kind of a new neuroplasticity where, um, you know, psychedelics uh, kind of are a stand in for your, for your reward center, if you will. Oh, that's interesting. I, I was not expecting that. I mean, the I, I love your I love your skepticism of of the uh, the the multi week use uh, because 
that you, I, I think I wouldn't, I wasn't expecting you to, to say that. And, and I've experienced the same thing uh, after, you know, either even four on three off after a couple of weeks of that, it's like, huh, is this really, is this really doing what I think it's doing? Same thing with cannabis too. And I think a lot mm-hmm. of long time cannabis users think that it's helping them. They, you know, they use smoking every day or multiple times a day for weeks or, you know, for years and years and years. And they think that it's helping them in a certain way. And the fact is it's probably not helping them in the way that they think it is. Um, mm. So I find, I find that, I find that really interesting. And, and, you know, I think with anything you've got to, you've got to be honest with yourself about what you're doing, how it's affecting you, whether it's helping or not. Uh, but I do want to, I do want to go back to this, you know, um, meta dosing versus microdosing. Can you, why, why don't you like the term microdosing? Why is that a misnomer? Well, it's, it's like any term that's unclear that, um, causes a lot of, uh, <laughs> ambiguity amongst people who use it and those who are trying to figure out what this stuff is all about. When we started using, uh, the term microdosing, um, which, by the way, the, the, the whole term um, has a, a pretty interesting uh, story. Um, it was actually coined by uh, my friend Rob Forte, uh, who uh, actually communicated it for the first time to Jim Fadiman, and Jim Fadiman kind of took it and ran with it, and good, good for him. Um, but the, the term is a misnomer because in some circles, um, what microdosing meant was a subperceptual dose. In other words, you, you were to take a dose that was so small that you wouldn't feel it. Let's say five migs to uh, five micrograms to, I don't know, 10 micrograms. Although I definitely feel 10 micrograms. Um, and we're talking LSD now, but um, there's corollaries to, you know, psilocybin, et cetera. Um, the idea behind the term microdosing in many circles was that it was subperceptual. The fact is most people who are using uh, what they consider to be microdoses are not um, having subperceptual uh, experiences. They, they're able to perceive what it is that they're doing. But when you test subperceptual microdosing against placebo, the data hasn't been great, um, especially not for cognitive enhancement. Um, so it hasn't really proven to be better than placebo. However, the work that established metadosing, it, it really goes back to the 50s and uh, 60s. And um, I think that there's very little uh, debate as to whether uh, perceptual small doses of psychedelics um, have uh, perceived benefit. Now, I don't know if they've tested um, uh, metadosing against uh, placebo, but um, in, in cognitive enhancement scores, I'll be very curious to see uh, what that um, what that's like and what kind of data shows up. But I'd be willing to bet that um, it will be better than subperceptual microdosing. So metadosing, I think, is an attempt to maybe get a little more clarity out there in terms of uh, this uh, concept of, you know, using doses of psychedelics that you can certainly feel, uh, but that aren't, aren't overwhelming and um, don't, uh, 
you know, uh, lead you to the same kinds of uh, experiences and uh, uh, inebriation, let's say, of, of you know, full on psychedelic doses. Interesting. I like that a lot. Yeah, I. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll skip I'll skip my thoughts on it because there's lots of different places I want to go with you. Uh, I, I want to take a little bit of a left turn because, you know, in 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 our you know we hung out one afternoon and and mm. uh, had a float session and and chatted and and I got to hear about your uh, your story. You know the the different the different companies, your experience with psychedelics, your uh, your connection with altered states of consciousness, and and seeing how you have you have been involved in the psychedelic space for such a long time and still are you know a really youthful person i i, I want to dive into this this idea of um being a little bit uh risky with your with your projects you know y- you have undoubtedly received tons of skepticism um criticism and you continue to advocate and research and do great work in the world and and i think that a lot of people a, a lot of my listeners at least uh like the idea of of entrepreneurship of innovation of doing things against the grain and and so i would love to hear how you manage cope deal with and move through skepticism when people are critical of what what it is that you're doing how do you how do you stay the course and stay focused on what you believe is right when when people uh, may not always appreciate where you're coming from great question um when i was younger uh we're going back to probably you know age six through through eight uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD and, uh, I was, uh, not the best, uh, follower of directions and I was quite hyperactive. Um, I had lots of tantrums, etc. And, uh, my parents, um, you know, did the best that they could, but, um, I think it's a certain point, uh, you know, to cope with my neurodiversity, let's say, um, I had to sort of own the fact that I was, um, an iconoclast. I had to bring that into my identity so that I was able to live with myself and, uh, not walk around just thinking that, um, I was a bad kid and, uh, stupid and, you know, anything else that I, I, I still told myself by the way, but, um, (laughs) that's another story, but, um, so I had it kind of in my identity that I was a rebel and um, that the uh, see the mainstream ways of thinking, this notion of normalcy, et cetera, was just not for me and not helpful to the world. And, uh, you know, I spent a lot of my early childhood reading, writing existential poetry, uh, <laughs> reading philosophy, uh, reading about psychedelics, actually. And I was a very, very weird kid. And so I emerged uh, from childhood um, really thinking that, uh, you know, the, the, the planet was screwed up because of our sense of what was normal and that we needed to obliterate this idea of normalcy 
in order to get something better that was going to work for for everybody. And um, I carried that into uh, you know my career, and um, I knew pretty early on that um, psychedelics were very important, uh, you know, to me, and uh, that they were this uh, sleeping giant in terms of their potential. And I was extremely passionate after both my research and my experiences, because as a young kid, I would go home from school and I would go on Airwood and just read all these experience reports about every, you know, every drug (laughs) and for fun. That's what I did long before I ever took any psychedelics. And I would read every book I could get my hands on about uh, psychedelics, Timothy Leary, et cetera. And um, long before I ever took a psychedelic, I was uh, very passionate about the the subject. So when I finally took my first psychedelic, which was at 15, which um, was young, but it was granted it was five years after I started to uh, really seriously look into psychedelics, um, I just became a lot more committed and more passionate about uh, the subject and getting the word out. And um, yeah, people, people told me I was nuts, but um, I was a historian in my own way. And uh, I, uh, I read about um, the history of psychedelics very avidly, and I saw how society changed. And so, you know, while my parents and everybody else told me I was nuts to be interested in the subject and it was just drugs and garbage, um, I knew enough about the history where I I could see through that. And um, I didn't get into psychedelics for the money. I never knew that uh, that it was actually going to be, uh, you know, legalized or mainstreamed or normalized or destigmatized to, to the extent we'd have an industry. Um, and I, I didn't care. That wasn't what motivated me. Um, and I wasn't all that optimistic about the government or about, uh, you know, um, the powers that be allowing these, uh, these drugs to, um, emerge as they have. And so when I started, uh, symposia and when I would tell people about psychedelics, it was, it came from more of a, um, you know, an advocacy activism type of place. Uh, and, um, in a place where I was just really fascinated and passionate about the, the subject and the history, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, sometimes in life, um, you know, what you do for a passion uh, becomes uh, something that you can make money on. It's not all, all the time that that happens, but, you know, psychedelics were, were one of those uh, things. And so um, I was going to stay the course in terms of my passion and love and advocacy for psychedelics, um, with or without the, you know, the, the financial uh, incentives. Um, and, but it just so happens that uh, society caught up to me this time. And, um, you know, I'm glad it did uh, for the most part. And um, in, in terms of like, telling your audience, uh, you know, what to do when you have an idea that nobody else will uh, accept or is very skeptical of. Uh, what I would say is that um, if that idea is meant to happen and if you're meant to do it, you'll do it. 
you'll do it regardless of what anyone else says. And you might fail or you might succeed, but you'll do it by virtue of the fact that you have to, which is what uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, who's the, the great uh, 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 German poet who wrote letters to a young poet said, he, he said, we, we write poetry because we have to. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm a big believer that if you're going to go out and change the world, um, you will, you will ha be driven to the extent where nobody will uh, be able to tell you otherwise. And um, if you're not, uh, you know, kind of designed for that, and if you're not, uh, uh, you know, destined to be successful with it, then you won't be. It's pretty simple, actually. <laughs> it, it is. When you say it like that, it does It does seem uh, pretty straightforward. You either got it or you don't. You're either going to keep working on the thing or you're not. You're either going to listen to your neighbors, your best friend, and your, and your mother to say, go get a real job, you know, keep your nose clean. Don't, don't, you know, what are, what are you doing that for? Why are you taking these risks? You, you're either going to listen to them or you're not. Um, and, and, and you know, some, yeah. sometimes the, the, the worst part is sometimes they're right. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they, they, there are a, a lot of shitty ideas, but what I've, what I've noticed is that the people who succeed, um, the idea is almost kind of beside the point sometimes, right? What, what, what matters, what ends up getting them success in the end is not whether they have a good idea. It's, it's whether they are, they are driven to uh, take something that's in their head and put that into reality, which uh, I think is really the meaning of, of true magic. And um, if people are obsessed with that, then eventually I think um, they will come up with so many possibilities that something will hit and they will uh, be able to to succeed or not that also happens you know and um unfortunately and uh i think that the uh people that i've seen in life who succeed um you know they always make sure that they bring in experts who know things that they don't so that they never are deluding themselves into thinking that they know things that they don't because um, the truly successful people remember that they're not experts. And, and I hate to break it to anybody who would disagree with me on this, but there are no experts in psychedelics. It's, it's too broad of, a, of an arena. It's too, it's too broad, um, it's too interdisciplinary. We need so many different kinds of experts in order to um, do the subject justice. And so uh, the people that I respect most in the space um, know this instinctively. And it's uh, actually the, this knowledge is informed by their, often by their personal experience with this medicine. And um, they, they don't go uh, posing as experts because, um, you know, when you open up that, um, that wormhole that is, um, you know, the brain in the midst of a psychedelic experience, there, no one's an expert there, right? It's, it's infinity. So uh, it's always good to keep in mind that no one is a 
uh, an expert when it comes to infinity. <laughs> That's the tweet right there. No one is an expert when it comes to infinity. I love that. I love that. Yeah, I think that that's 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 great. Great to keep in mind. You know, we we especially as a Western culture, uh, you know, position ourselves as experts in so many different things, and and something as as an exciting as the psychedelic industry. You know, you may have you may have taken a lot of trips. You may be really good at business. You may be um, you know a great researcher or chemist, but you you don't know everything, and and. Uh, surrounding your pe- surrounding yourself or seeking out people who know more than you is always a good idea in any endeavor when you're when you're looking to innovate and and build something meaningful. Now that's really that's really great advice. <laughs> that's the tweet right there. No one is an expert <laughs> when it comes to infinity. Um, I was well, just reading- give me a give me a percentage of the bumper stickers and we'll we'll be all good. Okay, <laughs> right. Uh, you know. I want to, I want to get back into a, a little bit of the the psychedelic experience because you know I read in a, in an interview that, that was published uh, maybe a year or two ago maybe longer uh, you, you have this line uh, that talks about enduring hardships for greater insights and the context in which you were talking about that was was going through psychedelic experiences in order to gain insights. And, and I'd love for you to, to maybe elaborate a little bit more on that idea because this, this can be applied with exercise. This can be applied with disciplined you know nutrition. This can be applied with a meditation practice or whatever. And I think that it's a really, really important idea that, that I think you are uniquely poised to, to elaborate on. So you, could you tell me a little bit more about uh, – expand on that idea of enduring hardships for greater insights? Well, the, the, you know, the fact is, if you have enough ayahuasca sessions or whatever, you're going to face some very challenging moments, right? It, there's no doubt about it. Um, I don't know anyone who uh, has had, you know, a hundred plus trips and hasn't had a really challenging experience. It's just uh, the, uh, it's, it's, it's part of it, right? Um, and I think I said that line in the context of uh, this attempt um, in some circles to sort of whitewash the difficulties of psychedelics um, and the psychedelic experience with respect to the psychedelic assisted psychotherapy uh, that um, I, I think is damaging both to patients as well as to the industry as a whole. Um, and by the way, it, it betrays kind of the, the core realities of working with these things. So it's important to keep in mind that, um, you know, the word psychedelic, uh, it, uh, when it was coined by, by, uh, Humphrey Osman and, um, oh God, I'm going to forget the, the other gent who coined it, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, they had a tagline, a slogan. It was, um, uh, um, fathom hell or sore angelic, take a pinch of psychedelic. Uh, and um, this notion of being able to kind of plumb the, the depths of one's shadow material uh, was very much part of the uh, theory around um, the efficacy of psychedelics. And yes, it was rooted in, you know, Freud and Jung and 
all of that. But um, I, I think that there's certainly some relevance to it. Um, it at the very least, uh, we might not say, hey, there's, there's a lot of efficacy and plumbing the, the we, we might not agree, in other words, that, that it's absolutely true that, um, you know, plumbing the depths of one's shadow material is always healthy or whatever. But I think we could say that it is true that um, when one is going through a difficult experience, being able to make it out of that experience uh, in the best possible way, where um, with for the the least amount of damage, and where you're liable to be able to integrate it in the best possible way, is preferable to uh, being further traumatized by a challenging experience. Um, so, you know, I take a kind of a utilitarian approach, uh, you know, to, to this work. And, um, you know, the idea is to minimize harms and maximize benefits. And, um, you know, to, to that um, point, I think it's, uh, it's always better to try to make the best of um, whatever experiences that we endure. Now, the, the caveat to that, which uh, several of my colleagues, especially at Symposia, would, 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 would bring up at this point, is that uh, the opposite side to that is that there's no such thing as a bad trip. And I think that uh, this statement is, is, is kind of patently false in, in, in a practical way. Like, there, there are definitely bad trips, right? Like, you know, uh, people attacking other you know, they're friends with an ax because they think they're demons because they're on LSD. That would constitute a bad trip. People, you know, going through the cliches of jumping out windows, et cetera. You know, I, I would consider that a bad trip. So I would never go so far as to say there's no such thing as a bad trip. But I do think that um, to this point of enduring uh, hardship and being able to, to do so in a stoic way where you can learn from that hardship as you go through is absolutely important um, in terms of performance, right? It's important if you're an athlete and you're, you're trying to break through that second wind, it's important if you're uh, studying for the bar and you just feel like you can't go any further, but you have to. Um, there are moments in life where we have to force ourselves to do things that are extremely difficult and a lot of times um, we realize in that process that, that actually they weren't as difficult as we thought and that um, we just had to look at them from a separate angle. And psychedelics can, can give us that angle sometimes. The last thing I'll say is that um, what I've noticed, um, I, I've noticed somewhat of a paradox uh, in terms of reactions to psychedelics. And maybe this is just kind of my anecdotal armchair psychologist speaking here, but um, when I've seen people who are going through a lot of suffering uh, take psychedelics, they seem to get a, a clearing from that suffering. And they're able to view that suffering in a dissociated way. And this is, um, you know, part of the uh, theory around why MDMA, for example, works with, with PTSD and, and you know, other psychedelics. But I've also seen that when people come into psychedelics with a smiling face and, you know, ready to have a good time and, um, 
you know, maybe not in touch with their shadow material, they tend to have uh, more difficult experiences. And I always found that interesting. I've seen it time and time again at different circles, and, um, you know, from people's uh, reports. And um, it's not always that way. You know, some people, I think, can take psychedelics at a fish show. And, you know, they have a great time and it doesn't look like they are um, having to deal much with shadow material and, you know, God bless those people. But uh, I think for, for others, there seems to be uh, really this inversion between, you know, the, the responses of people who uh, maybe do a lot of suffering in their daily life, having uh, experiences that are, um, you know, where, they, where they're allowed to uh, view it from a different side so that they can remove themselves at least for that session, if not a lot longer from that suffering versus, you know, those who are pretty unconscious um, going into those experiences and then becoming conscious of some unconscious material that um, is uh, very hard, very difficult to process. Uh, so, I mean, what does that tell me? I, I, I mean, to the extent that that's true, I, I think that that tells me that, um, you know, this, this notion of um, uh, performance optimization can sort of be bifurcated between those who uh, are trying to just get up, get, find a functional baseline in life. You know, it's maybe so they're not suicidal every day versus those who feel like they are fit and feel like they are at a decent baseline and they're trying to get to the next level. In which case, um, they have to almost go into that experience almost like a no pain, no gain type of mentality. Because to get to the next level, they need to be conscious of things that they're, they, they, they are yet to be conscious of that have to do with maybe their sense of well-being. And so um, those are just some observations that I've had anecdotally. I, I have no data to substantiate any of that. That's quite all right. <laughs> you don't have to, you don't have to show your work there. Okay. That's, that's okay. <laughs> no, no footnotes. Yeah. Uh, when I think about the, number of publicly traded psychedelic companies that are you know uh, innovating in their own in their own unique ways and, in, and and because it is infinity and because consciousness is infinite and psychedelics uh, affect consciousness i i i'm curious about sort of if you could give everybody for someone who doesn't really understand how you know psychedelic companies are able to monetize and actually make money as publicly traded companies when there's, you know, uh, legal ramifications or, you know, um, this is a, a terrible way to ask the question, but I, could, could you maybe sort of break down or, or explain to people the, sort of the various ways that these, that, that publicly traded psychedelic companies are, are, are legitimized? I think you're asking me, how does a public company retain value when it's not making money? Um, and that's yeah. an interesting question. Yeah. So, so the, uh, you know, the time horizon on most companies 
is like five years, right? Like forget psychedelics, forget public, right? Let's, let's say a tech company, right? Tech company, you want to get your product out there as soon as possible in some kind of beta version. You want to further optimize it. You want to boost your users. And um, eventually you either want to go public yourself or you want to have some kind of exit either being acquired or you want to raise some kind of series A and be able to boost your, your revenue at some point um, within that, that time span. With pharmaceutics, the, the time horizon is a lot longer because you're having to factor in um, clinical trials, which take a while, uh, FDA approval, the whole process, you know, not to mention, you know, the, the discovery and development process for a pipeline. And at Cybin, we've done, I think, a, a remarkable job um, actually moving at the speed of innovation with respect to our pipeline. But um, it's a different time horizon, and we're looking at more, you know, eight to ten year range where we'll be able to get um, FDA approval uh, for our compounds. And so by the time that happens, the notion is that every year for a novel compound that you have uh, having gone through FDA approval, you're hoping to do a billion a year or something. In, in, in revenue, if not more. Um, so the reward is bigger, uh, but the wait is longer. And the um, idea behind the value of the public company is that um, your investors are supporting the long-term vision that, that you have. And uh, we're lucky at Cybin that um, analysts have, have been very favorable. And I'm not gonna get into you know details about, about that because um, there's legal ramifications for me doing so, but um, I, your listeners could find that information if, if they want. Um, you know, the um, there's, there's always potential exits along the, the path for any company, and that could be getting acquired, that could be um, deciding to expand into kind of other areas of um, the industry, including um, expand in, in ways that uh, further your own product. You know, for example, uh, if you have a drug, um, typically, you know, companies will partner for the distribution of that, but not always, right? So there's a question about, you know, do you do your own clinics? Do you not do your own clinics? Do you work with a distribution partner? You know, do you partner with a, with a bigger pharmaceutical company? So there's, a, there's quite a few options for, um, uh, for monetization along that path. But generally, it is a long time horizon, uh, and the value of that company uh, is uh, needs to be supported by um, projections as to you know when the company is going to pay off, and usually those projections are uh, are quite impressive um, because once a drug is you know FDA approved and it's treating people who have no other kinds of treatment, uh, you know. Um, it, 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 you don't have to stand out there on the corner trying to sell it. People, people come to you, you know, doctors want to prescribe it, et cetera. So that, that's the thought process. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. I think that that helps uh, people understand how that works because, um, you know, you, 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 and especially me and especially you are, were, 
privy to how the market works. We're privy to innovations. We understand the potential, but I think we're you you and I are still super duper early in in what will what will come out of this uh, this resurgence in popularity uh, of of resources and use and applications. So it's cool to be able to to you know we're gonna look back at this episode in in ten years and go oh man we were we were still early or thirty years or forty years man we're still so early in the process. Mm. Um, can you what does what does a chief innovation officer do at a company like Sybin? Um, well, I uh, come up with out of the box ideas, hopefully, and then uh, I try to get the buy in of my skeptical colleagues and uh, make those things happen. And in my case, it's been really around um, what I call patient experience. So using you know my experience to put myself in the shoes of our patients and make sure that our approach to uh, who we're treating is uh, in line with what's going to be effective. Um, now that uh, has in turn lent itself to, you know, the development of our proprietary uh, digital platform, which I have alluded to, um, which we're in the process of uh, seeking partners for. Um, and it's also, uh, you know, played a role in uh, the discussions around which drug candidates we develop, what those drug candidates look like, how we design them, um, et cetera, et cetera. I'm trying to think about if if I want to poke a probe a little bit more on that. Uh, can you give us a, can you give us an example? What what what's an example of you know uh, convincing? team members of, of something that you're working on that, that makes, that makes sense as far as, um, helping patients. Well, uh, I started at Simon, um, architecting a digital platform that, uh, uh, I had to put together on paper. I had to bring in our, uh, partner on the software development side. I had to hire out a, uh, data analytics, uh, guru and, uh, work with, you know, a, a project manager on the tech side uh, to put together and build a prototype, which we've done. And um, this was, uh, a, and I think continues to be a very cutting edge uh, uh, approach uh, to um, uh, supporting patients on psychedelic uh, uh, medicines and um, supporting them before, during, and after. And so um, I'm grateful that they, uh, you know, saw my crazy vision and decided to, uh, to go with it. And, uh, but that's, that's the kind of work that has to be done. You know, you, you, you can't really, I mean, you, you, sometimes you have to take no for an answer, but you basically kill yourself to make sure that the, uh, that the answer isn't no, <laughs> because you want to put all the facts out there as you see them. So that uh, it's a no-brainer to to develop. Um, so uh, you know that's that's part of what I did at Simon, and uh, we haven't gone public yet with um, the prototype or, or really with the project in a in a big way, and that's um, strategic. But uh, I'm really excited for 
uh, you know, what Cybit has developed in the digital side. And um, that uh, I'm grateful that they believed in that vision of mine and my experience with developing digital platforms where they were willing to fund it. What can you tell us? What what sort of little breadcrumb can you provide people as far as <laughs> the digital? Just just a little, give us a little something. Uh, well, um, you know, I I just don't know what I can say, uh, and and what I can't. You know, <laughs> that's we're, all right. That's we're, all right. We're a public company, and uh, you know, I. I I should probably uh, get some clearer guidance on that, but uh, I did not for this call, unfortunately. And since we since we haven't had any kind of press release about this, I'm uh, reluctant to you know make this the press release without fair, without fair talking enough. to anybody at the company. Fair. Apologies. <laughs> no, it's okay. Fair enough. Well, we'll keep uh, we'll keep a, a lookout. Um, yeah. As we as we take take this the this interview to to the finish line uh where where um a couple of things and this is not only where can people find more about you if you want them to or about Simon or any of your other projects where would you point them on the internet but but also for people who are less familiar with um with with the psychedelic world you know what are some resources or books that you think are considered sort of essential uh, essential materials for people who are interested in learning more about the uses of psychedelics when it comes to um either either medicine or personal development or even um you know spiritual work Mm. uh well I think it's important. Um, it, it it really depends on what you're looking for. I think if you're looking for, uh, <clears throat> you know, as good of an understanding about the entire field of psychedelics as you can get, um, go back to the classics, right? Re- read about, uh, you know, doors of perception. Um, uh, try to look for older papers on psychedelics which are available on pubmed and um look for sites that um have timelines like psychedelic times i want to say they have a timeline on their on their website um that's pretty good uh where you can kind of see the the timeline of 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 psychedelics um uh on a huge level and then you can also kind of look at the timeline of uh, notable events in psychedelic research history and that'll give you you know a broad idea of um, kind of what came before and I think it's important to kind of know what came before so that uh, we're not sitting here thinking that you know all of this is 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 new or something Um, some of it is new but um, not all of it I think in terms of um, you know the uh, psychedelic uh, experience and, you know, the kind of the, the anthropological side of it, maybe. Um, I really recommend uh, Jeremy Narby's book, The Cosmic Serpent, which is just a lot of fun and really interesting. 
Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think in terms of uh, the history, um, I recommend Acid Dreams or Storming Heaven, which are two books that um, came out a while ago, uh, but really do a, a, an incredible job at uh, the history of these things, which is not straightforward, right? It, it's, not, um, it's not what people think. It's not just that, hey, these things were criminalized and, uh, you know, then we haven't had research and now, you know, it, it, there's a lot more stuff that happened in the history. And there's, uh, there's some reasons for why history turned out the way that it did that I think are, uh, are unclear to, to, to most people that I think are fascinating uh, to, to at least know about. Um, you know, in terms of, um, Oh, I don't know. Like in terms of like the uh, the guides on on how to how to actually sit for somebody. I, I, to be honest, like I haven't read all that much about that. Um, at least uh, there's no there's no books I can really point to. But um, I'm really proud of the work that uh, we've done at Cybin on the Embark program, which is uh, a um, just really, uh, I think, uh, fantastic uh, amalgamation of a lot of what's what's worked um, historically with psychedelic assisted psychotherapy put into a framework that's not unlike uh, you know a DBT. And um, the authors of that are Bill Brennan and Alex Belser. And uh, I think if you Google Embark, um, you'll be able to. Uh, read through the Embark manual, which uh, takes into account, um, again, as, as I said, a lot of what, what works uh, from different traditions, from different uh, philosophies, and, um, you know, put it into a really practical framework. And uh, I would urge anybody who's interested in that to, to check it out. Um, yeah, I, I, what was the other uh, part of that question? Yeah, where 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 could people learn more about you or the work that you're doing or where they you know uh, projects that you've been a, a a part of that you could share with people? Well, um, people can feel free to email me at um, Brad at Simon dot com. Um, I I actually don't like to put out um, you know to keep a running tally of uh, my accomplishments. I, I don't want a personal website or any of that. I, I end up getting just inundated with things. Uh, and um, at any given time, like I, I, I'm in a fortunate position where I, I can work with who I want to work with and they know who I am and, and they knock on my door. So I'm not really soliciting other things, especially now that I'm an officer at Cybin. But um, I'm always happy to uh, get an email uh, from somebody. Um, and, uh, I'm also happy to, uh, if people want to contact me on LinkedIn, I'm, I'm pretty efficient with LinkedIn. Uh, and I, I do respond to people's messages and I can be found at Brett Jesse green, um, on LinkedIn. And, uh, you can see some of what I've done on there, although not all of it. Excellent. So the last question I ask everybody is a fill in the blank question and, and we'll, we'll close out after this. 
you can elaborate. This can be based on on anything that you know or have experienced. You know, wisdom that you have gained in your fascinating career in life, and you can elaborate as much or as little as possible. But please fill in the blank. Everyone would benefit from knowing. Everyone would benefit from knowing that uh, hmm, that that they are both the center of the universe and not the center of the universe, and that uh, wisdom is about figuring out which of those possibilities you should be at any given time. <laughs> that's that's one to sit and ponder underneath an old tree. That was excellent. I, I've, I've asked that hundreds of times and that's, that's the first time I've heard that one. That's wonderful. Well, this, this has been such a great conversation. Thank you for, for spending the time with me. Um, there's, there's so much to look forward to in the world of, of psychedelics. And um, it's a pleasure to have you and in, in your insights and your thoughts and your experiences here on the optimal performance podcast. Hey, my pleasure. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me, Sean. And thanks also for the, the floating session. Oh yeah. My, my pleasure. We'll <laughs> Which do it was again. my first. I, yeah, definitely. <laughs> you take care.